God, you're here. You are surrounding us with your presence, your love. Um, Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit uses this passage from Scripture to tug at our hearts, to have us look deeper, to quiet our thoughts and our minds and our hearts, to hear your words, Lord. Encourage us and convict us. Um, God, we just give you this time. In your precious name, amen. So throughout 2022, we have worked through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are getting so close to the end. I'm the last week of this series, and then we will have um, the month of December um, to just finish in Matthew. So the last three weeks, we have been in a series called Light at the End of the Tunnel. And we've talked about the end of the world, of rapture, judgment, and then last week, Brent talked about hell. When I originally thought of a sermon on hell or judgment, I thought of the pastor in the old, old Disney movie, Pollyanna. Has anybody ever seen that? The Haley Mills? Jen? Anybody else? Okay. There is a pa the pastor in there is this kind man, and then when he gets on the pulpit, like the chandelier started shaking, and he's yelling, and he's yelling, death comes unexpectedly, and I just remember that. So whenever I think of, like, judgment, that's the picture I have in mind, but... Or Reverend Allen from Little House on the Prairie, he too was a gentleman, and one time he lost his mind and he went bananas on the pulpit. So those are kind of those feelings that that evokes. But I have appreciated these new layers um, about hell and about judgment and understanding Jesus' words. And this week, we were kind of promised heaven, but the blueprint, which is what we go by, I don't know where to stand. I'm going to stop moving, um, is about avoiding death, not about heaven. So don't worry. As Brent has done for the last couple weeks, he's going to do cutting room floor tonight and really delve into heaven. And I don't know if any of you saw Molly or um, Mandy DeHaan's um, post on Facebook about how absolutely wonderful it's been. I ran into her this week, and she was gushing, and then she gushed on Facebook. So if you haven't been... Um, I'd love to invite you. Brent just comes alive in those kind of settings, and um, I know he is excited to talk tonight. We actually will there'll be questions from all, all across the board if you want to come back. If there's anything from either of the previous two weeks. All questions will be addressed tonight. Not all will be addressed, but... <laughs> <laughs> all questions. He set me up for heaven. All questions will be addressed tonight. Um, so we'll be talking about avoiding death today. So as a culture, we often avoid the subject of death. Death happens somewhere else. We grieve privately. Um, but Jesus is inviting people to look at death. And because we are Christ followers, we don't need to be afraid of it. Jesus had just finished his very last public address. And then he begins again to prepare his disciples' hearts for his death. He cares about them so much, and he wants them to understand the deeper reason and meaning for why he came. So he bookends the story that we're going to read today about telling them of his death. I wonder if through this story we'll come to find that death is not something to be avoided, but an opportunity for all things to come into focus. 
that this woman today sees Jesus for who he truly is. I met with my friend Sarah this week from Walker Harbor to brainstorm writing this message together. She mentioned a book that she had read several years ago called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective, highly effective People. Has anybody read that book? Look at all you smart people. I have not read that book. But I respect her, and I thought what she shared um, was really helpful into giving us a picture for this message today. She said that habit number two is this, begin with the end in mind. The author invites the reader to picture their own funeral and to wonder, what do I want people to say about me? I've had the precious privilege over the last 18 months of writing three obituaries of people I loved a lot. My favorite grandma, my other grandma's dead, so she doesn't know that this grandma was my favorite, um, my cousin, and um, my sweet dad-in-law. So thinking over their lives and who they were to me personally, to those who knew them and loved them, writing those descriptive words, right, woven together to share who they were. What do I want people to say about me? About the kind of person I am? About the kind of mom or the kind of friend? The essence of who I am? At first thought, it feels a little awkward and kind of morbid. But as Sarah shared with me, the point is, if we know the destination we're headed towards, then we can orient our lives and our decisions and how we live to that destination. So if I want my children to say that I was fully present, that I'm there for them when they need me, it helps me to live intentionally. I can think, how often do I want to be home at night? how I can prioritize their activities, their events, time for them, how I can thoughtfully carve out that one-on-one -on -one time with them. So the habit of considering the reality of death is intended to give ourselves permission to go all in on the things that are important to us, what truly matters, and maybe not worry so much about the things that don't. The habit of beginning with the end in mind is really wrestling with what we value, what kinds of things have worth to us. And whether we're aware of it or not, our actions reveal what we place our value in. In today's passage, we are going to see this played out among several different people. And we're going to find out what Jesus is worth to them. To some, he meant everything. And to others, he meant really nothing. But the real question in all of this is, what is Jesus worth to you? In our text today, I would like to suggest that each of these characters had an end in mind. But some of them needed some tweaking. The heart behind Jesus' message and his meaning was again bigger and wider than what they would understand. Join with me in reading from Matthew 26, 1 through 13. 
When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining on the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I love reading the passage as a whole and then breaking it down. It's like taking in a picture and zooming in on different parts. When Jesus had finished saying all these things. What things? So in the previous chapter, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and taught his disciples about the kingdom, about judgment, and about how he wanted them to treat others. That the way they treated others was really about how they treated him. When Jesus finished saying all these things, Jesus really was finished. His public ministry had come to a close. In about 48 hours, he was going to be arrested and tortured and crucified. He had shared his heart over and over and over he walked those dusty streets, seeing people and healing them. He sat around tables, and he, re he sat around campfires. He calmed seas, and he sat on hillsides, weaving eternal truths throughout his stories. Jesus would never again sit on those hillsides or in a boat teaching the crowds. He wouldn't ever walk again through town stopping to heal people. The climax of this story is building quickly. Creation is holding its breath. The main event is coming. The very reason he came wrapped in flesh, fully human and fully God. This portion today is about preparation for Jesus' arrest and his death and everything coming to a head. Jesus talks to the disciples, and he's preparing them for what is about to happen. The priests plot and plan his arrest. A woman prepares his body and anoints him for burial. Judas makes arrangements and preparations for the priests to get their hands on him. Jesus knows that his death is really, really soon. And I wonder if his words are helping prepare his heart, too. 
He said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. They schemed to arrest Jesus and and secretly kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So the chief priests start plotting, rubbing their hands together, huddled, their hot breaths whispering murderous ideas. Jesus had been saying things they didn't like, and they wanted him gone. But not during the festival. They thought it would cause too much trouble. The festival that Jesus mentioned is Passover. You might remember from the book of Exodus that Passover celebrates when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. They were told to put the blood of the lamb on their door frames and that the angel of death would pass over their houses. The Jewish people have told the story of Exodus generation after generation so they will remember what God did for them. At Passover, they remember the bitterness of slavery, the ten plagues, and their rescue from Egypt into the Promised Land, which is the beginning of their covenant renewal with God. In the days of Jesus, the amount of people in Jerusalem during Passover multiplied fivefold. So it was a terrible time to plot and stir something up. But during the festival, however, is exactly when Jesus was killed. Let's continue reading. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. The perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? So this story that Matthew told is rich with characters who all have their say, they all have their role. Each person has an opinion about what they've seen and what they've heard, and it reveals their own motivations and perspectives, as well as what they think about Jesus, who he is, what he's worth, and what he's doing. So let's take a look at each character and ask ourselves the challenging question of who am I in this story? What parts resonate with me in both convicting and challenging ways? What is loving Jesus worth to me? So we have the priests. They're uneasy, they're fearful, they're skeptical. The chief priests in Caiaphas schemed and they plotted in secret. To them, Jesus was a political liability. He had been in their way far too long, making them look kind of bad by contradicting and challenging their teachings, and they want to get rid of him. So they plot his death. It's kind of unbelievable that these religious leaders were planning a murder. Out of everyone, They were supposed to be the ones leading people toward God and how to follow him. And yet here they were plotting and planning how to break one of the Ten Commandments. But they don't care. These religious leaders do not value Jesus' life, even though they had seen his miracles performed. 
that they had heard his teachings, observed the way he lived, how he cared for people and healed the sick. And yet Jesus wasn't worth anything to them. And this was the basis for their actions. Intentionally missing the invitation of Jesus and his way to flourish and then get away with it. Not valuing who he is. Then we have Simon the leper. Jesus was not in the home of Simon the great, Simon the wealthy, Simon the athlete. He was in the home of Simon the leper. Lepers were outcasts in ancient society. When you saw them on the street, you would quickly turn and go the other way. Pretend you hadn't seen them. Most likely, the Bible scholars think that Jesus healed this man. Jesus valued him, his life, who he was, when he was sick and when he was healthy. This man made room for Jesus at his table. In gratitude, he opened his home and he threw a party in thanksgiving for Jesus. We can learn from Simon the leper, recognizing the need for Jesus in both our unhealthy and healthy seasons of life. The disciples. The disciples, we read, are indignant. Basically, they're just pretty ticked off. They had been wondering for some time, when was Jesus finally going to do something? That was the end that they had in mind. This, that they, he would overturn Rome, this kingly, victorious conqueror of the empire. And he wasn't doing it. And then you have this whole display of pouring out perfume. What a waste of time and emotion. And you know what? As long as I'm mad here, what about the poor people? Let's talk about them. This perfume is pretty stinking expensive, and it could have been sold. The Passover festival was a time when giving to the poor was emphasized. Kind of like Christmas time, when giving becomes a priority in our culture. There are gift boxes at the grocery store, the post office, the gym. Or every time you check out, you're asked to round up. This is not um, a life lesson, but this is a funny story about rounding up. Ellery and I were at Big Lots last year, and at the end, they asked if I wanted to round up or like give a dollar, and I said, sure, it was for kids, and how do you say no to that? And so I clicked the $1 on the, the little pad, and the lady picks up a bell and starts shaking it and says, thank you for your generous gift, really loud. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I, like, what did I click? How much did I give? And Ellie looks at me and her eyes are big and like my heart is pounding and she hands me the receipt and I look at it and it was only a dollar. But it felt nice to be recognized for that moment, but it was pretty terrifying. But, so the disciples are asking, why is she pouring out this precious perfume? all over Jesus' head, wasting this valuable resource. This story in one form or another is told in all four Gospels. And the book of John sheds a little more light on what the disciples, specifically Judas, was thinking. And in John we read, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, 
and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was a year's worth of wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Perfume in those days was a luxury item. Perfume was rare. The ingredients were hard to come by. It was handmade, and it would have been saved for the most special of occasions. This lavish amount of perfume that the woman poured over Jesus' head would have been worth about 300 denarii, which is roughly what a well-paid worker would have been made in an entire year. What an incredible gift. So the indignance and the objections weren't really for the poor at all, but what Judas, a thief and a keeper of the money bag, could get out of it, a prophet of some sort, and I wonder if we can learn from this, indignance and objections to a lavish outpouring of love for Jesus, looking out for myself. And the woman. Imagine the scene with me for a moment. They ate reclined, so they were laying on the floor, kind of around a low table, right? Propped up on one elbow, using your other arm for food and for drink. And as the people around the table are talking and laughing and eating together, in walks a woman who gently navigates her way through those bodies. Picture her stepping over them, up to Jesus, and then quietly empties a bottle of perfume over his head. I bet the atmosphere shifted. The laughter and talking is replaced with silence and maybe some elbow pokes or whispers. What is she doing? The smell of freshly baked bread, roasted lamb, and sweet wine are replaced with an overwhelming sense of strong perfume. It was unexpected. It was surprising. Why did she do this? It was voluntary spontaneous, but this lavish giving is the fruit of Jesus' great love in a person's heart. She gave her very best to Jesus and held nothing back. This perfume was probably being treasured by her and saved for a really special event. And for her, this was that event. It was a perfect moment. She completely and vulnerably humbled herself in a room full of people. Her love for Jesus was undignified, pouring out expensive perfume over his head, wiping his feet with her hair with no regard for what people would think or say to her. This woman came to Jesus undignified, unabandoned, 
completely overcome through a demonstration of her love. So a question I have is what compelled her to do this? What else does she know that no one else knows? What does she see that everyone else is missing? And what does she believe that no one else believes? She believes Jesus that when he says, she believes him that he says he'll be killed. She trusts him in a way that the disciples don't, and her trust of Jesus helps her face a reality. The reality that Jesus was going to die. And it pushes her to do something bold and something outrageous. She alone anoints his body for the grave. It's an act of humility, yes, but it's also an act of faith. She trusts Jesus. She trusts that he is who he says he is. And then Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. I think from her, we can learn loving Jesus with all that we are, without a thought or a care as to who can see. And then we have Jesus. Right, this is a crucial moment for this woman. She's standing there completely exposed, completely vulnerable. How did Jesus respond? I picture him kind of grabbing her hand and squeezing it in reassurance, looking her in the eye and smiling, comforting her with these words. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus was sitting there reclining at that table, drops of perfume dripping from his eyelashes, surrounding by people, surrounded by people who were chastising this woman. Jesus wholeheartedly welcomed and defended her action, saying, as the message puts it, why are you giving this woman a hard time? She has just done something wonderfully significant for me. Lavish love for Jesus is a beautiful thing. It holds significance. It has great worth. After immediately defending the woman, Jesus dealt with the disciples' objection. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. We know Jesus. We know his heart. We know that Jesus cares deeply for poor people and that his disciples should also. But however, in that moment, what Jesus meant was that they were going to have plenty of time to serve the poor and care for them in the future. But there wasn't a lot of time left to serve Jesus or care for Jesus because he had just two days left on this earth. So it was the time for Jesus to prepare them for his death. For this reason, the woman's act had unique beauty and significance. No one really understood what Jesus meant. No one really understood what was happening to him. While the people were indifferent and self-absorbed, Jesus was preparing to go to the cross for them. Jesus might have felt a little lonely and misunderstood in this moment. 
But then this woman expressed her selfless love and gratitude to him. Jesus honored this woman. Truly, I tell you, whatever this, where, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are today, more than 2,000 years later, on a snowy November morning, remembering the worth and the beauty of this moment. I'd mentioned earlier that Jesus bookends this story by telling his disciples that he's going to die. This is actually Jesus' fourth time telling them that he was going to die. The first time that Jesus predicted his death is in Matthew 16. He asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter tells him, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus says, I am going to suffer, be killed, and raised to life. And then the second time was in Matthew 17. And this occurred shortly after the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah shining in heavenly glory. And then he told him, told them that he was going to be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then in Matthew 20, Jesus describes his death a third time. He spoke to his disciples as they were walking toward Jerusalem for Passover. He told them how he was going to be mocked and scourged, crucified, and then rise again. And we have the fourth time in our story today. It makes me wonder what was going through the disciples' minds when Jesus talks about death. If he says it once, you kind of wonder that maybe it's a random thought. And then the second time, maybe it made them feel uncomfortable and kind of want to change the subject. But then Jesus says it a third and a fourth time. You'd have to address it or at least give it some serious thought especially since he mentions how it's going to happen, who's going to do it, and when it's going to happen in just two days. This wouldn't be a random event. Jesus is on a divine timetable under the direction of God, and he knows what his future holds. He had told his disciples earlier in their time together, I am willing to lay down my life, but I will take it up again. My life cannot be taken away by anybody else. I am giving it of my own free will. My authority allows me to give my life and to take it again. All this has been commanded by my Father. Jesus wasn't going into his death blindly. He was fully aware he gives the perfect and beautiful example of living with the end in sight. He's trying to prepare his disciples, his friends, these young guys that he's lived alongside of intimately for three years, prepare them for what was going to happen. He wanted them to begin to see, to understand that there's something greater so that they too could live with the end in sight. By leaning into those characters of the story, what they saw, what they didn't see, how they chose to respond, where they placed their trust, we found that it's worth intentionally stepping into the invitation of Jesus and his way to flourish. That it's worth valuing who he is, 
that it's worth recognizing the need for Jesus in both the unhealthy and healthy seasons of our lives. It's worth living lives of lavish outpouring of our love for him. It's worth laying down our wants and looking to the needs of others. It's worth loving Jesus with all that we are without thought or care as to what others think about us. And it's worth living with the thought that death is not something to avoid. It's something that if we guide our thoughts, our intentions, the way we live, we can step into the beauty and freedom that living with the end in mind brings. And what is that end? It's home. It's our eternal home. Yes, Jesus knew he was going to die. But honestly, so do we. He knew the time in some details. And even though we don't know specifics, death isn't a surprise to us. I love the line in the song, In Christ Alone, where it says, Till he returns or calls me home. We all are going to die someday. And the way that we trust him and walk out our days on this earth matters. It has worth today, and it has eternal worth. Even now as we look outside and we see the trees without their leaves, we know that this death is leading to new life in the spring. It's leading to a new beginning. Jesus understood that his death was not the end, that his death leads to life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have eternal life. Jesus was about to take death upon himself to absorb it once and for all, to sacrifice his life for the lives of all the world. Jesus didn't avoid death. He had the end in mind. And that end did not stop when he was killed, but was bigger. His death brought life everlasting. And he has the invitation for everyone to join him in it. Jesus lived with a deep intentionality. When we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, we don't need to fear death either. We can look forward to joy with our, for our eternal home with him. The very first message of Jesus that we have in the Gospels is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had been announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He had been calling for people to repent, to turn towards him. Jesus unveils in this message the foundations and the character of life that are in the kingdom of heaven. He teaches the intentional guidelines for life in that kingdom, the guidelines that point to the beauty and righteousness that characterize life in the kingdom of heaven. Now in part, but fully later. Then Jesus began teaching the people. He said, great blessings belong to those who know they are spiritually in need. God's kingdom belongs to them. Great blessings belong to those who are sad now. God will comfort them. 
Great blessings belong to those who are humble. They will be given the land God promised. Great blessings belong to those who want to do right more than anything else. God will fully satisfy them. Great blessings belong to those who show mercy to others. Mercy will be given to them. Great blessings belong to those whose thoughts are pure. They will be with God. Great blessings belong to those who work to bring peace. God will call them his sons and daughters. Great blessings belong to those who suffer persecution for doing what is right. God's kingdom belongs to them. People will insult you and hurt you. They will lie and say all kinds of evil things about you because you follow me. But when they do that, know that great blessings belong to you. Be happy about it. Be very glad because you have a great reward waiting for you in heaven. That's how he began his ministry, the reward for the kingdom of heaven. And now as his public ministry is coming to a close, we really see that he lived with the end in sight, drawing us to himself, inviting us to trust him so that we can join him in his eternal home, our eternal home. How we choose to live out our days on this earth that he has given us matter deeply. The story of this woman that I told today is precious to me. I used it a year and a half ago for my grandma's funeral. As I prepared that week and recounted those moments that made up her life and wove it throughout this passage, I realized then how much of her life was an offering of something beautiful to Jesus. And then upon further reflection this week, after learning Covey's habit of living with the end in sight, I've been thinking a lot about her again. My grandma lived a life with the end in sight. She stepped into a life of flourishing because of Jesus. And she is living today in the reward of her eternal home in heaven because she opened her heart and life to the beautiful invitation Jesus gives us to come to me. Max Lucado says in his book, The Applause of Heaven, great, Jesus said, is your reward in heaven. He must have smiled when he said that line. His eyes must have danced and his hand must have pointed skyward. For he should know, it was his idea. It was his home. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for inviting us, Lord, into a life of something beautiful, something that has worth. Lord, help us have that kind of love for you that is um, vulnerable and reckless and that we step into it with abandon and we love you without care of what people think about us. Lord, help us to have the passion of an eternal home with you beating in our heart. Lord, help us to share that passion and that joy of knowing you and what knowing you brings our home forever. We love you. Amen.